please go ahead and turn in your Bibles there to Matthew chapter 21. We are picking up in verse, um, of course I'm on the wrong page here. We're picking it up in verse 18. If you uh, missed last week, uh, Pastor Mitch spoke in my absence. We were away. Our last child, our oldest, our son, was got married, and uh, we're grateful for that. And uh, it was great to be finally shed of all the kids. It's a blessing. What's that? Change the locks. I don't think they have any keys, but uh, they all live somewhere else, so unless they show up randomly for some unexplained reason. So it was uh, good to get that done. It was, uh, I didn't have a chance to watch the service last week, but I listened to the message during the week. And I have to tell you, uh, I was super blessed by the message, and it was, it was a great message. And uh, so if you missed it, go back and listen to it. It's on the app. It's on the website. <clears throat> so uh, the triumphal entry and where Jesus cleansed the temple. So today we're picking it up in Matthew 21, verse 18, um, and let's start reading there. So there is that uh, passage there. Yeah, there you go. Thank you very much. Okay, now in the morning, as he returned to the city, he was hungry, and seeing a fig tree by the road, he came to it and found nothing on it but leaves and said to it, let no fruit grow on you ever again, and immediately the fig tree withered away. Now when the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, How did the fig tree wither away so soon? So Jesus answered and said to them, Assuredly, I say to you, If you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what was done to the fig tree, but also if you say to this mountain, Be removed and be cast into the sea, it will be done. And all things, whatever you ask in prayer, believing, you will receive. Now when he came to the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people confronted him as he was teaching and said, by what authority are you doing these things and who gave you this authority? But Jesus answered and said to them, I will, I also will ask you one thing, which if you tell me, I likewise will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, where was it from? From heaven or from men? And they reasoned among themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say to us, Why then did you not believe him? But if we say from men, we fear the multitude, for all count John as a prophet. So they answered Jesus and said, We don't know. And he said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. But what do you think? A man had two sons, and he came to the first and said, Son, go work today in my vineyard. He answered and said, I will not. But afterward, he regretted it and went. Then he came to the second and said, Likewise. And he answered and said, I go, sir. But he did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? They said to him, The first. Jesus said to them, Assuredly, I say to you, that tax collectors and harlots enter the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But tax collectors and harlots believed him, and when you saw it, you did not afterward relent and believe him. Hear another parable. There was a certain landowner who planted a vineyard and set a hedge around it, dug a wine press in it, and built a tower. 
And he leased it to vine dressers and went into a far country. Now when the vintage time drew near, he sent his servants to the vine dressers that they might receive its fruit. And the vine dressers took his servants, beat one, killed one, and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants, more than the first, and they did likewise to them. Then last of all, he sent his son to them, saying, they will respect my son. But when the vine dressers saw the son, they said among themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and seize his inheritance. And they caught him and cast him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those vine dressers? They said to him, he will destroy those wicked men miserably and lease his vineyard to other vine dressers who will render to him the fruit, the fruits in their seasons. Jesus said to them, did you never read in the scriptures the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a nation bearing the fruits of it. And whoever falls on this stone will be broken, but on whomever it falls, it will grind him to powder. Now, when the chief priests and Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking of them. But when they sought to lay hands on him, they feared the multitudes because they took him for a prophet. Lord, please add your blessing to the reading of your word this morning. May it penetrate our hearts. May it become, become evident to us, Lord, the things that we need to carry away and apply to our own lives. Lord, thank you for everything that's going on here today. We ask your blessing on the offerings, on the potluck, on the time of fellowship, especially on the communion table. And Lord, may we draw near to you today as you bless your people. In Jesus' name. Amen. So we have this situation as Jesus has uh, entered Jerusalem on the day of the triumphal entry. Uh, Part of this passage takes place on Monday, the day after the day of the triumphal entry was on Sunday, on what we call Palm Sunday. It's the beginning of the Passover week. And so Jesus went in and out of the city every day during that week, leading up to the time of his crucifixion on Thursday. And so Jesus, after uh, he had cleansed the temple, now was uh, in the the next day, he was returning to the city. We believe this was Monday morning and he was hungry and seeing a fig tree by the road, he came to it and found nothing on it but leaves and said to it, let no fruit grow on you ever again. And immediately the tree withered away. Some might wonder as you look at this, what's going on here? Is Jesus against fig trees? Is he against plants, healthy plants? No, he's not against any of those things. In fact, the only two times that Jesus said or did something that could be perceived as destructive was when he cast the demon out of the man, the demons out of the the man and the Gadarenes. And of course, the demons went into the herd of swine, of pigs, and they ran down the hill into the Lake Galilee and they all drowned. And then here where he cursed the fig tree. And he did this for a very specific reason. Uh, It wasn't just because he was hungry. We find here that as he walked into the city and he saw this fig tree, uh, he had hoped to grab a couple of figs because he was hungry. And that the equivalent of us today might be you're walking down the road at this, this time of year and you're expecting to see some apples on the tree and you want to grab some apples. 
But in this particular scenario, as he saw this fig tree, it only had leaves on it. In fact, we get the idea or the impression that it was full of leaves, or it was giving the impression of having life and having fruit, but in fact, it had no fruit, and it had the appearance of having life. Now, the important thing for us to understand as we look at this is that the fig tree was one of the symbols of the Old Testament of the nation of Israel. Just to give you a couple of inputs here, in Jeremiah chapter 24, it's not a long chapter, but I'll commend the chapter to you. But there in Jeremiah chapter 24, verse 1, it says here, The Lord showed me, and there were two baskets of figs set before the temple of the Lord, after Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away captive Jeconiah. And as it goes through the situation here, it's setting up a scenario of there were good figs and bad figs. And there were good figs within the nation of Israel. And back then, of course, there was the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. And so God's making this prophecy here, calling the figs the nation of Israel. And as we continue to read in Jeremiah 24, verse 5, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, like these good figs, so I will acknowledge those who are carried away captive from Judah. So as he goes through this scenario... You get the idea and the understanding that the nation of Israel, the the, the northern kingdom and and the kingdom of Judah, uh, he was looking at them saying there's good figs and bad figs. In fact, he goes on to say in that passage, then I will give them a heart to know me that I am the Lord and they shall be my people and I will be their God and they shall return to me with their whole heart. And so God was looking at his people uh, in one scenario as a vineyard and we'll look at that in a minute because he gives us a parable of a vineyard. So he looked at his people as a growing, living, dynamic being. And that just like a vine dresser with grapevines or just like the owner of a a grove of fig trees, uh, the Lord looks at his people and expects to see fruit, expects to see life in his people. A couple of other places, Hosea 9.10 It says, I saw your fathers as the first fruits on the fig tree in its first season. Joel chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. It says, uh, speaking there uh, negatively of those who have harmed his nation, it says, he has laid waste my vine and ruined my fig tree. And so the Lord had this view of his people. And so Jesus, in walking and seeing this fig tree, you see, it wasn't just about that tree didn't have any fruit on it, and Jesus got mad at it and cursed it, and it shriveled up instantly. But it was Jesus sort of giving the disciples and those around him a picture, sort of a living parable of what's happening with the nation of Israel as he's come into it. Remember the day before he rode into it on the donkey, proclaiming that day, fulfilling that prophecy, as Pastor Mitch told us about last week, uh, from Daniel chapter 9, as Jesus fulfilled a several hundred year old prophecy on the very day. And as he rode into the, to the, the city that day, he presented himself as their king and as their Messiah. But within the next few days, they will reject him and the same people, the same voices that shouted out, Hosanna, Hosanna, glory to God in the highest as Jesus rode down the Mount of Olives into the city on that donkey, on that colt. Those same voices over the course of the next few days will have a change of heart and they will shout out, crucify him, give us Barabbas. 
And so that is the contrast here. So Jesus curses this tree. You see, the tree had an, a, picture, a picture or an appearance of life. But in reality, the nation of Israel had no life. Its leaders, as we're, as we're going to see as we go through this passage this morning, the leaders are being indicted by Jesus by the time we get over to chapter 23 in two more chapters. There is a scathing rebuke by Jesus for those who are supposed to be the spiritual leaders of the nation. And they were so off base and they were so corrupted that they weren't doing anything to lead the people spiritually, to minister to their needs, to shepherd them. Instead, what they were doing was robbing the people. And just like when Jesus cleansed the temple as we went through that last week, they had taken the court of the Gentiles, which was supposed to be the place where all the nations could come to God. You see, there's only one temple. And it, it was broken up in various sections, and we don't have time this morning to go through the layout of the temple and what, uh, how it was laid out and, and, and why. But the court of the Gentiles was there so that anyone could come to God. And that's the idea. And really, the court of the Gentiles, in a sense, is a type of the gospel. That the gospel is for all people and the invitations for all people. And Jesus is going to begin to challenge this morning in these parables uh, their understanding when he says that I tell you, you know, tax collectors and harlots will enter the kingdom of God before you because they had sort of a class mentality. They thought that they themselves as the, the righteous ones, the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Herodians, however the, the classes were divided up, that they were the righteous ones and surely they'd be at the front of the line. They'd be at the head of the class on the day that they entered God's kingdom. And everybody else, all the other sinners would be at the back of the line, somewhere downstream. And so that's why Jesus had to cleanse the temple. Because they had taken his house, which should have been a house of prayer, and they had made it a den of thieves. And so Jesus now cursing the fig tree kind of is connected to the cleansing of the temple. As he curses that fig tree, it dies, and the disciples in verse 20, they saw it, they marveled, saying, how did the fig tree wither away so soon? They witnessed this miracle of Jesus. And Jesus said to them, and as Jesus always does, he didn't just answer their question directly. He sort of zooms out and he gives them the big picture. And here's what he says in verse 21. Assuredly, I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what was done to the fig tree, but also if you say to this mountain, now where is Jesus? He's entering Jerusalem. The only mountain right in front of them was the Mount of Olives. So Jesus was likely gesturing toward the Mount of Olives, saying to them, also if you say to this mountain, be removed and be cast into the sea, it will be done. And whatever things you ask in prayer, believing you will receive. Jesus, you just cleansed the temple. Jesus, you just cursed a fig tree. And now you're teaching us about prayer. We're a little confused. What are you talking about? How do these things relate? You see, we need faith as people who trust in God. You see, faith is what brought us to the Lord to begin with, right? Somewhere along the way, the Holy Spirit revealed to us our sin, revealed to us our weakness, revealed to us our dire state, our, our, our great need before God. And we recognize that and 
by faith. Somehow in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 tells us that God gives us the faith to even believe him. And we come to him and we trust in him and we say, Lord, help me, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Lord, I repent. Lord, I, I turn from my sin and from my wicked ways and I want to follow you. I need you, Lord. I want to be forgiven. I want my conscience cleansed. I want this anger and this unsettledness within me to go away. And I got to tell you this morning, one of the saddest things I see as a pastor is believers who are angry and unsettled. Where's the peace of God? It says that we have peace with God in Romans chapter 5, and that we then, after we have the peace of God, we experience, uh, uh, after we have peace with God, then we experience the peace of God in our lives. And so we have faith. And Jesus said to them, Assuredly, I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, Now, having faith, not so much in the sense that I think so many people have ruined this part of our understanding that the word of faith, people, the people who say, well, the reason why you don't have a new car or why you're not wealthy or why you're not healthy is because you don't have faith. You see, it's not that at all, is it? If we have faith to believe in God and to trust God, to trust him for our salvation, Listen, we are trusting God with the most important single decision we could ever make in our lives. And it's not getting married and it's not having kids. And those are big ones. It's where will I spend eternity? Will I be with God in heaven? That's the single biggest decision any human being can make. And every human being needs to to struggle with and, and make that decision before God. So if you have faith and you do not doubt, and you see that's the kind of faith we're talking about, saving faith, faith that believes in God, faith that says, I want to be the person you want me to be and I want to do the things you want me to do. You see, it's a genuine faith that trusts in God and you will not only do what was done to the fig tree, in other words, you'll have faith to be able to minister in the name of the Lord and to do the things the Lord wants to have done. But also, if you say to this mountain, be removed and cast into the sea, it will be done. And whatever things you ask in prayer, believing you will receive. There's so many places we could go this morning. We we, we could stop right here and just do a Bible study this morning on prayer and faith. And what does it mean to believe in God? And what does it mean to trust God? And yes, we carry our, our burdens to him and we cast our cares upon him. But what about the faith to do what God wants to have done. Remember Jesus all the way back in the Beatitudes, Matthew chapter six, right? He taught us how to pray. Our father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Not just that God would bring his kingdom, but that we would be a part of that. And that we would be a part of taking his kingdom to those around us. Give us this day our daily bread. We worship God first. We We look at him for his holiness. We ask him to make us into his likeness and his image. And now we say, Lord, we want to enter in and we want to serve you. And so we want to have faith to to do the things that you want us to do. And yes, as God calls us to work and to minister and, and to love and to reach out, yes, there's obstacles. And so by faith, we cry out to the Lord. We say, Lord, we believe you want us to to do this, to take the gospel here, or to plant a church there, or to send missionaries here. But Lord, there's problems, there's obstacles. How do we do it? We get on our knees, and we pray, and we beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into the harvest, and we pray, God, please remove these obstacles. 
Please provide the funds. Please provide the passports and the visas. Please provide the transportation. Please provide a place for this family to live when they get to this foreign land. Please provide someone who will teach them the language and who will help them get established. Please protect them as they try to establish a church in a hostile place. And whatever it may be, we pray and we ask the Lord. Ask, ask in prayer, believing, and you will receive. How did the fig tree wither away so soon? Jesus explained that this miracle was really the result of a prayer made in faith. If you have faith and do not doubt. He then encouraged his marveling disciples to also have this kind of faith, trusting that God would hear them just as he heard Jesus. J.C. Ryle, whose books out there we've recommended in our bookstore, he said this concerning this thought, this passage. Finally, is not every fruitless professor of Christianity in dreadful danger of becoming a withered fig tree? There can be no doubt of it, so long as a man is content with the leaves of religion, with a name to live while he is dead, and a form of godliness without power. His soul is in great peril." So long as he is satisfied with going to church or to chapel and receiving the Lord's Supper and being called a Christian, while his heart is not changed and his sins have not been forsaken, he is daily provoking God to cut him off without remedy. Fruit, the fruit of the Spirit, is the only sure proof that we are savingly united to Christ and on the way to heaven. May this sink down into our hearts and never be forgotten. You see, Jesus, as he cursed this fig tree, was pointing to the fact that the nation of Israel, and in particular the religious leaders, were bearing no fruit to the name of the Lord. But in like manner, this can be applied to us, can't it? As people who are his sons and his daughters in his church, is there fruit in our lives or are there only leaves? Well, as we move into the next section... Your Bible may say something like the authority of Jesus is challenged or questioned. There are a series of three parables here, two in this chapter and one in chapter 22. And in uh, verses 23 through 32, there is the rejection of God the Father by the religious leaders. And then in verses 33 through 46, there is a rejection of God the Son. And then as we get to chapter 22, verses 1 through 14 in that parable... They reject God, the Holy Spirit. So their rejection of God in this Passover week leading up to the time of the crucifixion reflects the fact that they don't just, you know, reject a couple of ideas about God. They are rejecting God in his totality. They are rejecting the Father, rejecting the Son, rejecting the Holy Spirit. So as we read down to verse uh, 23, now when he came into the temple, The chief priests and the elders of the people confronted him as he was teaching and said, by what authority are you doing things and who gave you this authority? Now, the reason they are asking this question is very simple. In their day and age, in this time, there was only one uh, seminary, if you will, or Bible college or governing institution by which someone could be a rabbi and teach. And that was by going through the Hebrew school there in Jerusalem. And the scribes and the Pharisees, the Sanhedrin, they were the the body who would present and say, okay, this person's a candidate to become a priest or this person's a candidate to become a rabbi. 
And Jesus, of course, went through none of that. And they often questioned him and said, by what authority, you know, where do you get this authority for your teaching, Jesus? And so here they are on this day, listening to Jesus as he's there. And, you know, we're in Passover week, and there's probably greater than two million people as the city has swelled up because of the feasts. Pastor Mitch mentioned to us last week, three of the seven feasts were compulsory. And there's actually three feasts happening in succession right now in the city of Jerusalem. So it's just overrun with people. And so Jesus is teaching. And as he came into the temple, the chief priests and the elders are going, okay, wait a minute. We checked the roll. Your name's not on there. Nobody from our group authorized this. No one that we know gave you authority. So where, Jesus, did you get this authority to do these things that you're doing and say these things that you're saying? But Jesus answered and said to them in verse 24, I, will, I also will ask you one thing, which if you tell me, if you answer it correctly, I likewise will tell you by what authority I do these things. So Jesus, in his typical fashion with these people, answers a question with a question. Don't you hate it when people do that to you? Well, if it's Jesus, it's okay. So, Verse 25, the baptism of John, here's his question. Where was it from? From heaven or from men? Pause. Now, I imagine this situation here being a little bit like if you've ever seen the TV show Family Feud. They are, they are given their opportunity to steal. And so all the families kind of over, over, you know, gathered together and they're, you know, you know, whispering and trying to come up with the answer. So they've kind of gone aside and huddled up while Jesus has thrown this question out on the table. And they reasoned among themselves saying, if we say from heaven, he will say to us, why then did you not believe him? But if we say from men, we fear the multitude for all count John as a prophet. And so they came back and said, um, yeah, we don't know. We don't know the answer. So you get the situation here where they know the answer, but they don't want to say it because if it's A, meaning if we say, yes, John was a prophet, John's authority, it came from God. What, What God did through John out in the wilderness as he was baptizing people and saying, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And the amazing work that God did in and through the life and the work of John's ministry. If we deny that, then we are denying God. And if we, you know, say, you know, it's the other answer, you know, it's from men. And of course, they're sort of looking at their own question. They're asking him, where did you get your authority? Which would have been from men themselves. But they're saying to him, well, what if we say from men, then we fear the multitude for all count John as a prophet. So by what authority are you doing these things? These religious leaders raised the question of Jesus' authority, and he answered by raising the question of their competence to judge such an issue. And he says to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. They didn't seem interested in answering the question honestly, only cleverly. In fact, what they were really doing was giving a political answer. They wanted to remain in the middle between God and between the people. They didn't want to lose the respect of the people. They didn't want to lose the financial support of the people. They didn't want to lose the respect, the admiration and awe that people held of them as they walked down the streets in their black garb and all of that. They they were only interested in maintaining the status quo. 
But as we know from the ministry of John the Baptist, John declared Jesus to be the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John declared Jesus to be the Mighty One who was to baptize with the power of the Holy Spirit. And if they acknowledge that John came from heaven, then they must also acknowledge that Jesus himself came from heaven because certainly Jesus did greater things than John had done. Now this brings up a basic principle of Christian living, and it's this, that we cannot learn new truth if we disobey what God has already told us. And certainly these religious leaders knew the truth. They knew the right answer, and so therefore they couldn't learn new things. They couldn't go forward in their, quote, religion. They rejected the truth preached by John. They were rejecting what Jesus was saying to them, and certainly they rejected Jesus as their Messiah. You see, John and Jesus were both under the same authority, weren't they? Which was the authority of God himself. God sent them, and we have to look no further than back to their origin, to how their birth took place, to the miraculous nature of John's birth, and the miraculous nature of Jesus' birth. In fact, in John chapter 7, the Jews marveled after as Jesus was teaching, and it said, them speaking, how does this man know letters having never studied? They knew Jesus didn't go through their institution. And Jesus answered them and said, my doctrine is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone wills to do his will... He shall know concerning the doctrine whether it is from God or whether I speak in my own authority. So already Jesus had sort of had this discussion with them. And here they are again challenging him. But Jesus doesn't let it just rest there. He presses forward. And so he says in verse 28 in this continued dialogue and interaction with them, okay, what do you think? Now, this was a typical rabbinical teaching. He's like, okay, we're not getting through, we're not making any progress here, so let's come at this from a different angle. So here he is, verse 28. Okay, what do you think? Let's, let's throw this scenario out. A man had two sons, and he came to the first, and he said, son, go work in my vineyard. So the vineyard, as we've already talked about, is another parable, is another way of looking at the nation of Israel, at, the, at God's people. We can look at Psalm 80, which tells us about this. And again, I commend that to you. Psalm 80 talks to us a bit about how God looks at his people as a vineyard. And then in Isaiah chapter 5, verses 1 through 7, that's sort of the definitive place where God defines who his people are. And in that, in that, that parable he gives in Isaiah 5, 1 through 7, he says in verse 7, for the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. So he says it very clearly. And the men of Judah are his pleasant plant. He looked for justice, but behold, oppression. For righteousness, but behold, a cry for help. So God looked at his people as a vineyard. So as he tells them this story, it is highly likely that they would have understood, as he says, you know, and again, in rabbinical fashion here, he's giving them a parable, giving them a scenario Son, go work in my vineyard. And so he answered and said, I will not. But afterward, he regretted it and went. Then he came to the second and said, likewise. And he answered and said, I go, sir. But he did not go. And then Jesus asked the question, okay, which of the two did the will 
of his father. Now, as we think about things, the issue that's going on here with the the religious leaders is that they thought themselves to be righteous. They thought they were okay. And so they're challenging Jesus. They think they are the ones who are in control. They are the ones in authority. They are God's authority. And so they feel that they, they have to challenge Jesus, but their blindness is because they ignored the teaching of John, and thus up to this point they've ignored the teaching of Jesus. They have rejected the idea of repentance, and their spiritual pride has put them in a place where they cannot see and understand their own situation, that they are destitute before God, that they need to repent, that they need salvation, that they need forgiveness. But because of their education, and this is so often the case, isn't it, of intellectualism, of people who are highly educated. Because you see, the gospel, the word of God can go to anyone, regardless of education. It can reach the highest mind, and it can reach the lowest. It can reach the illiterate. The gospel of God is for all people in all times and all places. And these people were spiritually illiterate. Remember when Jesus was interacting with Nicodemus and he was telling Nicodemus there in John chapter 3 as they had that private nighttime meeting where Nicodemus was afraid to reveal himself so he comes to Jesus and they have this discussion about being born again and in that interchange Jesus looked at him and he said, are you the teacher of Israel and you don't understand these things? This is the same thing that Jesus is having here as he talks to these scribes and these Pharisees. In fact, we have another illustration of this hardness of heart and this unwillingness to repent in Luke chapter 18. And it says this in Luke 18, 9, Jesus spoke a parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and they despised others. And here's the parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. So Jesus pulls no punches. He says, okay, we got a Pharisee, a religious teacher, a highly educated person, and a tax collector who, was, who of course, was despised and was in the lower class of people. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. And of course, he's saying this out loud so that others can hear. And the tax collector, standing afar off, would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. That's the issue that Jesus is addressing. And so, speaking of the two brothers here, he answered and said, I will not, but afterwards he regretted it and he went. You see, he spoke wrong, but he did right in the end. Then when he came to the second brother and he said, I go, sir, but he did not go, he spoke right, but he did wrong. And when Jesus said to them, the punchline, which of the two did the will of his father? They said, well, it's obvious from the parable that the first one. Now, right here, as I was reading this, I thought about the fact that you remember David's sin with Bathsheba, if you've read that story in the Old Testament. 
And as David was now in, say, it was about a period of about a year after his sin. And Psalm 32 and Psalm 51 were written out of David's experience as he eventually repented for what he had done in committing adultery with Bathsheba and with having her husband killed. But there was that fateful day when Nathan the prophet came to to David and he said, David, got a a story for you. And he said, okay, tell me. Remember, Nathan told him the story about a neighbor who had a little flock of sheep. And there was this very wealthy man who lived next door and he was looking down. He had everything he needed. He had all the flocks and herds and everything he needed. But he looked down and he's like, that guy has a sheep that I don't have. So I'm going to take it because I want it. And as he tells the story, and he plays out the scenario before David, and he says, this rich man took what belonged to this poor man, this little bit that he had, and he took it for himself. And David said, that's it. Who is this guy? We need to put him to death. That was terrible. And what did Nathan say? He said, David, you're that man. Pointing out his sin, you went to someone else's flock and you took what did not belong to you. And that's when David repented. And in this moment, as Jesus comes to them, he says here in verse 31, Assuredly, I say to you that tax collectors and harlots enter the kingdom of God before you. What you don't understand is that this is a cup of cold water in the face. This is slapping them in the face with a dead fish. Okay? They were appalled and mortified that Jesus would say such a thing to them. No one has ever said anything like this to them. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But tax collectors and harlots believed him, and when you saw it, you did not afterward relent and believe him. He's making it very clear. You had an opportunity, you saw, you heard, the word of God was preached to you, the spirit of God was at work, and you ignored it. In fact, Jesus is is sort of giving us a picture here of the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit as they reject the work of God. So in this parable, when the father, as Jesus is just using it as a teaching device, but there is something that we can learn from this, when the father says to the sons, go and work in my vineyard today, here are some things that we can learn. The father spoke to his son individually. He did not speak to the sons together. So he went to them one-on-one. And so does he do with us, right? He comes to us individually as his sons and daughters. And he says, will you work in my vineyard? The same invitation was given to both sons. It was an individual call to work. The father appealed uh, to each of the sons, first as a son, and then as, you know, the the knowing that the son was the son of the father, you know, there was the relationship there. There was the aspect of the personal, the father saying to the son, please go work in my vineyard. And in reality, the sons knew the vineyard would, in essence, become theirs. It would become a part of their inheritance. So their vineyard was not just their father's vineyard, it was their vineyard. And then the father asked the son to work, that is to participate in the family business. And we are reminded here that he was asked to work. It was not that he was asked to play. He was communicating to him a seriousness that there is work to be done. The father asked the son to work today, not later, not in some distant future time. Son, would you go into the vineyard today and work? 
And the father asked the son to work in my vineyard. You see, it belonged to the father and it should have mattered to the son. Why? Because the father was the one who was in authority. One commentator in looking at this sort of pulled out this truth for us to understand and applying to ourselves. There are many churchgoers that imitate the second son. They admit that the word of God is true. They intend to get serious about it someday. They talk about doing the Father's work. They keep up the external appearance of religion, but their heart is not right with God. And they think that words and promises are enough. Spurgeon, who always gets to the heart of the matter, said, The second son said, I go, sir, but he went not, and these people do not go. They talk of repenting, but they do not repent. They speak of believing, but they never believe. They think of submitting to God, but they have not submitted themselves to him yet. They say it is time they broke up the fallow ground. uh, Excuse me. They say it is time they broke up the fallow ground and sought the Lord, but they do not seek him. It all ends with a mere promise. And so they've come to the place that they are sinning against the light that they know, against the truth that they know. And this is dangerous because now they are moving into a place where they are hardening their hearts, hardening their consciences, and they are moving to a place of lying to the Holy Spirit. And we could actually take this and lay beside this the passage out of Acts chapter 5, couldn't we, of Ananias and Sapphira? where they did the same thing and they went and they publicly proclaimed that they were, as they were giving money and they sort of flaunted it, that what they were giving was being done in a righteous manner. But of course, the Holy Spirit revealed it to Peter. And you know the story that the Lord in that situation regarded the purity of his church such that he took their lives. And so we need to understand that the issue is with repentance. The issue is walking with God. The issue is drawing near to him. The issue is that it being genuine, that it should be genuine and real in my life and in your life. And yet the Lord says, doesn't he, in 1 John, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You see, We are always one word away from being restored to God, and that word is the word repent. It's just coming back to the Lord and saying, I'm wrong, I've made a mistake. Lord, I haven't been walking with you, and I want to come back and follow you. Well, as we move through this, uh, the parable of the tenants, the second parable, which talks about the idea, this first one of rejecting God the Father that we've just covered, this one talks about rejecting God the Son, So in verse 33, here another parable. There was a certain landowner who planted a vineyard and he set a hedge around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to vine dressers and went into a far country. So you get the idea here in this parable. uh, There's a a landowner and he's wealthy and he's come and he's developed it and he's made an investment. Now he wants to lease it out to someone, the vine dressers. So again, It's clear, as we've been talking about Isaiah chapter 5, other places, pointing to the fact that God looks at his people as fig trees and as vineyards. So this parable, the landowner planted the vineyard. He did all these things. He prepared it and he leased it to the vine dressers. And then he went away into a far country. And so now you get the idea that Jesus is sort of laying the parable out, right? He sent his son 
He's going away into a far country while he waits and he sees what happens with the fruit that's been planted. And now, verse 34, when vintage time drew near, that's the harvest, he sent his servants to the vine dressers that they might receive its fruit. And the vine dressers took his servants, beat one, killed one, and stoned another. The picture here we're getting is that God over the years sent his prophets to his people. And as he sent his prophets, and they came, and they brought the word of the Lord, that so often it was rejected, and that's why God, of course, took them into the exile. God's people had strayed from the Lord, and it began with, uh, after they had come out of the nation, excuse me, after they had come out of Egypt, and God established them, and he established the tent of meeting and the tabernacle, and how he wanted to be worshipped, and he gave Moses the law on the mountain, And he set up how he wanted to be honored and worshiped and that he would be in their midst and he would take care of them and provide for them and meet their needs. That they eventually devolved to the place of needing priests over them. And then they got to the place that they were unhappy with that. And they said, we want a king just like the other nations. And God relented and said, okay. And as he did that, the kings, the the series, the succession of kings became corrupted, and then the nation became fractured, and they divided into the northern and the southern kingdom. And as we read through the kings and the chronicles, we find there was good kings in the north and good kings in the south and bad kings in the north and bad kings in the south. But for the most part, there were way more bad kings than there were good kings. And what made them good or bad? Because they either followed the Lord or they didn't. And they either worshiped and had gods in the high places and they worshiped pagan gods, but they also pretended to honor God. And God said, we can't have that. And then God kept sending prophets to them to warn them, saying, if you don't repent and return to me, I'm going to send a foreign land, a foreign agency to come in. I'm going to send pagans whom you hate and despise to come in and to be your judges. And we know that God had two waves come in and they were taken captive both to Babylon and and to Assyria. And so there's all this history here. And so Jesus, as he presents this to them, he says, the vine dressers took the servants, they beat one, they killed one, they stoned another. He sent other servants more than the first and they did likewise to them. Then last of all, he sent his son to them saying, they will respect my son. Jesus is declaring right there that I'm the son that was sent to you. But when the vine dresser saw the son, they said among themselves, this is the heir, come let us kill him and seize his inheritance. Guess what? Guess what's going to happen within the next two days of Jesus saying this? So they took him, cast him out of the vineyard and killed him. Jesus, of course, was taken outside the city And killed on Mount Calvary. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those vine dressers? They said to him, now this is them speaking, them realizing they know the answer. They said to him, (coughs) excuse me, he will destroy those wicked men miserably and lease his vineyard to other vine dressers who will render to him the fruits in their seasons. So what this is saying is that God, at this point, at this moment, as as we go through the time of the crucifixion, God is going to remove his hand, (coughs) excuse me, from the nation of Israel. And he's going to 
send the gospel to the Gentiles because the nation of Israel is rejecting the gospel. This is very important for us to understand because this is why we have the rest of the New Testament. Because the gospel went to the Gentiles. That's what the book of Acts is about. In the beginning, the gospel came to the nation of Israel. And yes, there were some there in the first 10 or so chapters of the book of Acts where the gospel came to the Jews and there were some who received him. But by and large, it was met with uh, coldness and, and, and it was rejected. And then the gospel went to the Gentiles. This is not saying that God is done with Israel. This is not saying what we term today to be replacement theology, that God rejected Israel and thus now he's replaced Israel with the church or anything like that. This is simply saying that God is moving on for a period of time from his people who have rejected him, who rejected their Messiah, and that he will judge them for that. Now, one thing we know as we look at this parable and Jesus talks about, you know, come, they're sending the heir, the vine dresser, excuse me, the father or the owner is sending the heir. And then they say, come, let us kill him and seize his inheritance. In Hebrews chapter one, verse two, it says, in these last days, God has spoken to us by his son, whom he has appointed heir of all things. You see, Jesus was the heir. So in verse 42, Jesus said to them, have you never read the scriptures? The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. First of all, a day or two earlier as Jesus rode into town on Palm Sunday and as he descended the Mount of Olives and as he came around the corner and he saw the shimmering of the temple and he saw the city. Remember Luke's gospel gives us the added benefit of saying that Jesus wept as he rode in because if you had only known this your day that I, your Messiah, your Lord was coming. And so Psalm 118 was being shouted on that day and you remember the scribes and the Pharisees were telling Jesus, Lord, make them stop. Make them stop. And of course, last week, Pastor Mitch pointed out to us, you know, out of the mouth of nursing babes and infants that you have perfected praise. Jesus said, have you never read? And here again, he says to them, have you never read? Now, this again is a slap on the face to them. These are the lawyers. These are the people who know the word of God. Have you never read the scriptures? Therefore, I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken from you And given to a nation bearing the fruits of it. And this is a pivotal verse because now it's pointing to the gospel going to the Gentiles. And whoever falls on this stone, verse 44, will be broken. But on whomever it falls, it will grind him to powder. So Jesus is the cornerstone. He is God's rock of stumbling and a stone of offense, but he is also the cornerstone. In fact, the apostles later in the book of Ephesians and in other places point to the fact that Jesus is the cornerstone for the church. And he says, and whoever falls on this stone will be broken. So those of us who come across Jesus and understand this as we share the gospel with people when we mention the name of Jesus, it's good for people to stumble over the rock of Jesus. Why? Because if we fall on the rock, We become broken. We become wounded by the Savior. And that's the best thing that can ever happen to any of us. And he says, but for those, as Jesus has been pointing out here, for those whose heart is hardened, 
who have not repented, who have not relented, and who, who hear and hear and hear and yet continue to not hear. Remember the parable from Isaiah? Hearing, they do not hear. Seeing, they do not see. And it says here, but on whomever this stone falls, it will grind him to powder. You see, we're in a place now before the tribulation comes and before Jesus comes to judge the nations. We're in a place now where people can fall on the stone and be broken. But a time is coming that the stone will fall on them. You see, Paul says in the book of Philippians, and we all know this verse, we just need to connect the dots, right? One day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You see, you can bow the knee and confess now by falling on the stone and being broken. Or one day the stone will crush you and you will be forced to understand, to recognize that Jesus is the Messiah, that he is God, and that he is God's solution for sin. And that he is here to bring us to the Father, to bring us to faith, to bring us to peace. You see, we can be broken in humble surrender before God, or we can be broken in judgment. The brokenness will happen, but will the brokenness be willing, or will the brokenness be forced upon us? Now, when the chief priests and the uh, Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking to them. Their understanding. Nope, you're not misunderstanding. You're getting it. But when they sought to lay hands on him, they feared the multitudes because they took him for a prophet. That is, the multitudes took him for a prophet. So they had already declared, as we read the Gospels, much earlier in his ministry, they'd already determined they were going to kill him. They were going to find a way to get rid of this guy who was upsetting their apple cart and who was causing problems, upsetting the status quo. So here we are in Passover week. Two days before they had said, Hosanna, Hosanna. Now we're building up to the place. You can see the transition as we walk through Passion Week. We're getting to the place where they are going to lay hands on him and they are going to seek to crucify him. So next week we will pick it up in verse 22 with that next parable of these three parables. They've rejected God the Father. They've rejected God the Son. And next week we'll start off by looking at how they reject God the Holy Spirit in that parable on the wedding feast. For us this morning, as we take a pause and, and move over to a time of communion, uh, I, I, I titled the message because I couldn't, <clears throat> honestly, I couldn't think of a better title than Attitude Check. You see, these people, as Jesus was teaching, these scribes, these Pharisees, and everyone who was listening, they had to check their own attitude about who was Jesus. And so do we. I assume that because we're sitting here this morning and those listening online who want to hear and who want to listen are listening because you're hungry, because you're thirsty, because you know the Lord and you want more of him. But it's possible that there could be some listening who do not know him, who have never given their hearts to him. Maybe you've grown up in church. Maybe you've heard about Jesus all your life, but all you see, because I hear this constantly, is the hypocrisy. And you see the bad things that have happened in the church and the people that have sullied and marred the name of Jesus Christ. And they've done horrible things in the name of God. And yes, we understand that. And I 
My heart breaks for that. But listen, it doesn't change the fact that Jesus was the answer. Jesus is the only way to God. He is the way, the truth, and the life. So this morning, as we come to the table, the table of the Lord is for all who believe in him. It doesn't belong to a particular church or a particular denomination, or you have to be a member, you know, to come to the table of the Lord. No, if you believe in Christ, you come to the table. So this morning, if you have believed in him, praise God, we're going to enjoy the table of the Lord together. But if you've never believed in him, or you've never trusted in him, or maybe you need to just stop and do a little check this morning and say, well, I don't know, like the fig tree, I've got leaves, but there's no fruit. Maybe it's a, a time to do a little heart check here. Maybe it's a time of repentance, either from your sins originally and come to Christ because you never have, or maybe it's a time for us to come back to Christ if we've wandered off the path. But either way, let us come to the table this morning, professing the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is God. He is God's solution. He is God's way. He is the, the, the sacrifice for our sins that we might know God the Father. Jesus said, hey, I, I point to the Father. Don't look at the church and all the failings. Look at Jesus. Jesus said, I've come to show you the Father. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Look at him. I fail. I make mistakes. So do you. But thank God salvation's not in me and it's not in you, it's in him. There's only one person who's ever lived a perfect, sinless life and his name is Jesus. That's why it says, he's the author and the finisher of our faith. So this morning as we come to the table of the Lord, let's humble ourselves before him and receive from him. Lord Jesus, thank you this morning. Thank you that you have come and that you've given yourself on my behalf, on our behalf. Thank you that our sins are forgiven. Thank you that we now belong to you. And Lord, we want our lives to grow in faith. We want our lives to look more like you. So Lord, <clears throat> do a work in us, whatever it needs to be. The things that perhaps we're aware of right now, maybe all too painfully, Lord, attitudes that we have towards you, towards friends or family, uh, anger, hatred, bigotry, whatever it might be that's in our hearts, God, we confess it to you right now. And we ask you, Lord, to do that deep cleansing work in our lives. If we confess our sins, you are faithful and just and righteous to cleanse us and to restore us to that righteous right standing. Lord, we love you, we bless you, we thank you. And as we come to the table this morning, we ask you, Pour out your spirit upon us. Make this a sweet time of communion with you, Lord. May we remember as we come to you who you are and what you've done for us. And we pray these things in Jesus' name.